0: Lina Weichbrod, machine learning engineering specialist who has earned her wings working with some of Europe's largest machine learning structures with Zalando and Deutsche Kreditbank. Can you share a From the Trenches machine learning debugging story with us?
1: Certainly. I, I, I remember quite a few of them. One that jumps out in particular is um, I'm sitting in my car. It's uh, quite dark. I'm driving to my family Nine at light. I get a ping from a colleague, which I know very well. And she says, I'm seeing the same products on every page. And you have to know we're like a huge, multi, many, many million um, of revenue shop um, in Europe. So... When this is happening and it's happening to everybody, it's it's a real big cause for concern. So I'm, I'm stopping the car, I'm going to the side of the road and I'm, okay, let's reproduce this. I'm looking at the page and thankfully, I do not see this problem. I'm seeing the regular recommendations on every page. So, okay, catastrophe averted, but now we still want to understand um, what happened and um, what we did together with a colleague. He did most of the investigation there, he was still at home. He looked at applying a post-mortem format to, to this bad experience so we can find out what actually did happen and find the underlying cause. So he goes into the five why of, of post-mortems and he says, okay, why is she seeing the same products on every page? Um, we get her a cookie and account information and we check our logs to confirm the problem. And um, we indeed see that she sees fallbacks, so top selling items everywhere. So then in the postmortem you say, okay, why is that the next step? And um, we found out that she has we have a filter that filters out all the regular items and since only she sees this problem it must be one of the personalized filters most likely because we're looking at the exact same um, pages and we don't see this problem and in this case we look at the post-processing business rules and there's only one that is that is personalized and that was a personalized filter so at this point we're like okay it's a personalized filter but why is it doing weird things? And then we had a look and we saw, okay, she's recorded as having a special assortment size that was a plus sized assortment. And none of the articles she was browsing were plus size articles. So that means that none of the recommendations were also plus sizes. So we've, what, the, what the filter does is it tries to keep only articles that fit your personal size. So you're not frustrated if you're an S And all the articles that you click are sold out in in size S. So that was happening to her. So none of them were available in the plus size because they're not plus plus sized articles. Um, So they're all filtered out. And that's very interesting. And then you can reason about it. Okay, that is happening to her as having her personal size being recorded as plus size. So who else does that apply to? For example, we had other special assortment sizes like petite or it could happen to users with rare sizes, if you have really big feet or you have very small feet, then the the articles you go to maybe don't have recommendations in, in, in your similar size. So maybe you still would like to see some articles at least and not have everything sorted out. So now we got the root cause and now we can think about the action items so what do we want to do in this case we cannot offer your size but do we want to filter everything out um is it okay if if we don't filter out if there's nothing left or maybe should we look at cases where there's one or two articles left so now we can think about the action items and i think that was a very interesting case because you can have um, a typical example from machine learning where the problem only applies to a subset of your population.
0: Welcome to Inference, an AI business podcast by Silo AI. I'm Ville Hulko, co co-founder of Silo, and with me today is Lena Weichbrodt. Lena is a machine learning engineering specialist who has contributed to machine learning ops development in some of the largest organizations in Europe, such as Zalando's recommendation system and Deutsche Kreditbank. With a passion for system usability and making machine learning actually work for customers, today we'll be discussing about post-mortem data monitoring and the practicalities behind those. Lina, great to have you, welcome. Thank you for having me, Vila. So Lena, software postmortems are a practice known to all software developers who've ever been a part of an industrial release. You've introduced the concept of ML postmortems into Zalando's and Deutsche Credit Bank's MLOps toolkit. Can you talk about your philosophy with machine learning postmortems?
1: Yeah, so I, I found that machine learning engineers and, and also machine learning scientists don't often use postmortems and I found them super helpful and very applicable also to the uh, machine learning domain when you make a few tweaks. So what we do is, for example, when we have this user experience debugging and we have a bad user experience, we apply the postmortem format, we take screenshots of what the user saw. Um, a layman description of what they inspected instead and why the outcome is not very good in their opinion. So we have a clear idea what what they are upset about and what they would have expected instead. Similar to basically a user unit test, if you want to call it like that. And we need to collect some technical information for debugging, like their cookie, their user count, et cetera. And um, then as a, as a general rule, uh, it's important to know that if you look into one user, they're, they're, the, they're representing the silent majority. So as I know from service industry um, research in, in, in business, if you have one complainer, you usually have 99 dissatisfied users who maybe leave you. So you can use this great complainer um, as a resource to improve the product for everybody. So what you need then is, is some tooling that you can use in your post-mortem. We have, for example, you have to lock the historic inputs and the outputs of your model, and you also have to lock some metadata that helps you debug that is not necessarily needed for the request. For example, what platform the user is on, um, maybe the user number, so you can join with other data sources to find out what's going on. And as a general insight, I found out that For some reason, with machine learning, people seem to like to recognize patterns in the bugs. So for example, I had it with some colleagues that they saw a bug and they were like, ah, it's the well-known Amazon washing machine problem, where once you buy a washing machine, then you only get recommended washing machines. So once you bought something, you only see that. That was actually not the root cause of this particular bug we were looking at, but With machine learning, one one maybe can have a tendency to jump to a conclusion instead of having a really structured approach um, to debug them. So these postmortems help to have a really structured and documented formalized approach. And then what also we have found is that you should not stop as it's not a bug, so I won't fix it. That's very often uh, a tagline that you see when someone closes a bug report, not a bug won't fix. So I would say if the user rep- reproducibly think, and not maybe not just one user, maybe the same problem keeps surfacing to you, they think it's a problem just because you think they don't understand the system, how it works, or it's designed like this, you should accept that this is a problem. And uh, when it comes to the to the action items of a postmortem, which is the part where we define what to do, then uh, there are three groups of 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 action items. There's the fixes, like a regular postmortem has. So we need to fix this or that system or alert. Then there's possible follow up al- analysis to, for example, scope the size of the problem. And often I also found that the outcome is a product hypothesis that you can look at and the product can prioritize. For example, um, from another bug I had where a user was very upset that he saw a lot of male underwear models after having bought um, underwear. One hypothesis that you could derive there was That for underwear maybe you want to show the plain items and not the model pictures so you avoid having four naked men plastered on your home screen so this could be a product hypothesis that the product can think of and the types of products that maybe should not be displayed on the model yes or no is it important to them etc and um, one final remark about the post-mortem procedure would be uh, that I recommend a fixed budget for quality fixes, because otherwise those are often prioritized low individually, because they can be small and it's like refactoring. If you if you don't have a budget for refactoring or you do it as you go, you never get to it unless it becomes huge. So I recommend not to let the quality rot and have like a fixed budget for that.
0: You know, I'll- Love your point about having the fixed budget already planned out for this beforehand. Because at the end of the day, I I suppose one of the core fundaments of working with production-grade machine learning is not the the out-of-the-box performance, but it's essentially how do you tolerate on having an imperfect system in production. So like with recommendation systems, you can't have a recommendation algorithm that has a two-digit suggest the click rate without first deploying a system that at least has like some sort of cold start problem. But on that note, um, data monitoring is certainly a topic that is on the rise with like ever increasing numbers of data science pipelines in production. And when we talk about qualitative debugging, so for example, debugging a recommendation system's recommendation instead of something that's poorly coded, um, it's difficult to debug without monitoring. So how are you approach data and model monitoring in your production deployments?
1: Definitely it's a really hot topic and very interesting one. So for the quality, I recommend you do an automated check of quality heuristics. And for the general ML monitoring, I'm usually quite fascinated that there's so much focus on on, on data monitoring. What I recommend typically first instead is that you monitor from the back, you monitor from the outcome, because the more likely you catch something that is changing the outcome, the more likely you catch something that makes a significant change to, to the downstream user or application. So what you can do here is, you can either compare the outcome against a true value that you retrieve close in time. For example, if you have a live test set, or what you can do is you, you you monitor the distribution of the outcome over time. There's an interesting paper from Google called Data Validation for Machine Learning. And what they use is, for example, a D1 metric, which is just a histogram. So you put two histograms of the data of the output um, at, at time T1, at that time T2, and you compare the size of the buckets, the size of the the bars basically. And if, if they the, the histograms look very different, obviously the output distribution changed. So this is a nice rule of thumb. You work yourself backwards from the outcome of the service to the to the income of the service, which would be the data, which then helps you with understanding where the outcome changed. But let's say you're monitoring the input data and you have let's say 200 fields and one of them changed. Is that bad? You don't really know. It's only bad if it has an impact on the outcome and a strong impact maybe perhaps. I would say it's a thing you can do, the the input data monitoring, but it's not the first thing I would start off with. I would start with monitoring the output distribution.
0: So after having managed deployments of essentially tens of millions of users and having built your monitoring creed basically from scratch, what would be your recommendations to people who are now starting out with implementing machine learning monitoring into their pipelines?
1: So I would say uh, it depends if you're starting from scratch. So if you're starting from scratch, I would look at one of the full featured platforms that are currently popping up evaluate the market um, and see see if you like one of them. If you're already in an engineering domain and you already have quite a few of the services set up, uh, for example Prometheus or your alerting solution, I would just say that you can implement your own relatively simple metric that will serve you quite well. Um, so the main concrete two things to implement would be That you check a difference between training um, data and prod data when you go live and then when you are live you monitor for changes to the output and you have one or two quality heuristics and if you do these three steps you will have let's say the 101 of the monitoring and you add the other things as you go
0: now hearing you tell that actually brings a story in mind about some of the early day projects that we did with Silo, where we were working on a visual quality control case for an industrial client regarding um, pipelining, and as we were creating the first iteration or the first version rather of the of the quality control system, um, we received video material regarding a pipeline network that was being manually quality controlled, and. On that material, we built a flaw detection, a crack detection, a blockage detection algorithm, and we implemented it on the first test set of the database. And it performed extraordinarily well. Like I'm talking, even in production created environments, just ridiculously good performance metrics. And, you know, of course, at first we were patting ourselves on the shoulders that, yeah, you go us. We' Clearly know what we're doing, but then, like as one does, we started to a little bit maybe question the the logic that we had there, and we went back and took another look at the results. And what we discovered is that in the sample set videos um, that had been previously annotated by a human being, when there was a flaw or a blockage, that flaw had been annotated into the hard video file itself, so it was burned onto the video feed as a piece of text. So we kind of realized that we didn't, at the first pass, teach the system to detect the flaws or the blockages. We taught the system to read the annotations from the video and interpret those as successes. So basic logic takes you pretty far, right? But having those next step monitoring systems thought out and existence is definitely a valuable thing to have. And with that, we're starting to reach the end of the episode. And as a finisher, Lena, your choice of key takeaways for the people who are now embarking on the journey for debugging and monitoring in a production grade process.
1: So uh, welcome, happy to have you on board on the fun side of the ML monitoring area. So what I would tell you that, um, is it's absolutely useful to apply postmortems to machine learning debugging. They're very structured and it's very helpful, so, so do it. And um, consider on a weekly or bi-weekly basis to have an analysis of bad experiences from your users with such a postmortem format and have a fixed time budget to do quality fixes based on your insights.
0: Lena, thank you so much for coming on Inference again. And for anyone listening, please do not hesitate to hit um, her up as well on LinkedIn. So Lina Weichbrod um, with any tricky questions regarding machine learning engineering. Uh, once more, thank you for coming on and for anyone listening.